Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast, a part of the New Books Network. My name is Heath Brown, and I'm going to have the real pleasure today to talk to the author of The Increasingly United States, How and Why American Political Behavior Nationalized. The book is uh, published by University of Chicago Press, and the author is Daniel Hopkins. Uh, uh, Dan is here with me today. Dan, how are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, there's so much in this book that I almost don't want to spend uh, any time uh, doing anything other than talking about it. But but let's hear just a little bit about yourself before we get started. Um, would you share just a little a little bit about uh, where you've been and where you are now? Sure. I am a political scientist at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I I previously taught at Georgetown. I was a postdoctoral fellow at Yale, graduate student at Harvard, and I had worked for the city of New York um, before that. One of the nice things about that set of experiences is that I've gotten to live in a wide range of at least East Coast cities and have some sense of the very different challenges that are faced um, by cities like Baltimore, where I lived for a few years, versus Boston or New York City or Washington, D.C. or Arlington, Virginia. And so it was partly the experience of those very different places that helped get me in the mindset to write this book. Yeah, and, and this this um this balance between localism and nationalism is is uh, or not nationalism, but sort of the national scales is really at the heart of the book. the The premise of your book is is sort of deceptively simple, uh, in in the sense that many casual observers wouldn't really challenge the central thesis. Um, but what you do is is so much more complicated. Um, in part because what nationalization means is not altogether clear. Nationalization is what the book is really about. I wonder if you'd start us out here by by defining nationalization and then explain a little bit about what prior research hasn't quite figured out about nationalization over time that, that you sought out to figure out in the book. Great. I think that's, that's a great question. And I would, I entirely share your experience that Nationalization is something that is discussed by American pundits and journalists um, relatively straightforwardly. And one of the things that I wanted to do in this project was to really try to make sense of what nationalization is, how should we, how should we think about it, what were the pieces of nationalization that we'd been doing a good job of understanding, and which pieces not so much. Um, you know, we frequently would look at election outcomes and say, hey, this is a highly nationalized election. And we would mean by that something vaguely to the effect that um, there, the local or state-level election results were reflecting something about what was happening in national politics. But I think that defining and unpacking nationalization is one of the key projects of the book. And so I, in the early stages of talking about this book project, was talking with my colleague, Michael Bailey at Georgetown. And one of the key points that he had made that stuck with me about nationalization is the fact that if I tell you that a very, very local race, say a a city council race, has become infused with national issues, all of a sudden the candidates are attacking each other over who supported Mitt Romney in um, the last presidential race, in a Washington, D.C. city council race. Um, So that's clearly nationalization in one sense in that Issues and personalities defined in national politics are now making an appearance in in local politics. But whether that how that affects 
political behavior isn't entirely clear. You know, you could imagine that if today we all care exclusively or almost exclusively about what's happening in Washington, D.C., then maybe we don't turn out so much in local races. But on the flip side, you could also imagine that if people care so much about national politics, the way to engage them in local politics is precisely to make connections, to say, hey, if you vote today in this local race or in this state race, you can send a message to Trump. You can send a message to Barack Obama. And so from that conversation with Mike Bailey, one of the ideas that then emerged was that we really need to distinguish different phases of nationalization. That on, that on the one hand, we might think of an election as nationalized when the election returns at the state or the local level match up closely, when the, the same issues are being contested, when the same parties are contesting the races, and when voters are making the same choices up and down the ballot. But on the other hand, we, we can't lose sight of a second, less visible element of nationalization, which is what's the level of government at which we are focusing our political attention? When we engage in different political behaviors, when we vote, when we sign petitions, when we tweet about politics, are we focused exclusively on what's happening in Washington, D.C., or do we take time to think about what's happening in Albany or Harrisburg or Sacramento? And so one of the, the initial moves of the book is to try to really distinguish between these two different sides of nationalization and, and acknowledge that they may move separately. And in fact, one of the things that I see when I start in on analyzing overtime trends is that they have moved somewhat separately, that contemporary politics is in it, here in America is distinguished by the fact that we have been nationalizing on both of these dimensions. So you know, both vote choices are really integrated today up and down the ballot from uh, elections for president to elections for dog catcher, city council, or the like. Um, but also, we're seeing nationalization along that second element. We're seeing uh, voters today who disproportionately care about what's happening in Washington, D.C., and are much less interested in, knowledgeable about, or engaged with what's happening in their state capitals. Now, you, you argue uh, for this using uh, so much interesting data um, that it's almost too much to even figure out where to start. So let's just start with, with one, one area that you, you look at, which is campaign finance data. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could explain why we might expect uh, political donations to give us a clue about uh, nationalization and, and also what you found about this. Absolutely. I think that donations are important for multiple reasons. Um, in part, donations are a key form of political behavior, right? That they give us an opportunity to see what are the races, what are the levels that are attracting the attention of the, the small but, but not trivial number of Americans who donate to political candidates. And also, political donations allocate resources. They signal the movement of resources. Uh, and so they're, they're an important indicator then of whether our political system is, you know, 50 or 51 separate state level systems, whether it is really one integrated national system. And as late as 1990, if you look at um, races for Congress, two thirds of um, itemized donations to congressional candidates came from within the state that that candidate was running it, right? 
suggesting that there was some significant emphasis that when donors were thinking about giving money, they were thinking about candidates locally. Um, but more recently, as of 2014, the shares had reversed such that now two-thirds of campaign contributions, and this is just on the, the hard side, so campaign contributions directly to candidates, two-thirds of them are now going are coming from out of state. And what this means is that we've seen um, the increasing prominence of a, a nationalized campaign finance network so that when Democrats need to raise money, they go to New York or they go to California. When Republicans need to raise money, they go to Dallas or other um, sources of real Republican wealth. And that um, has a number of consequences. In part, it means that increasingly our politicians are part of a single nationalized network. Um, and those networks then can shape their priorities. We also see this if you look at, say, races for Senate and races for governor. These are both candidates who are running for statewide office. Um, but in recent years, contributions for governor have been relatively flat, while contributions for Senate have seen a market increase. And I think that this reflects the fact that um, the competition for control of the U.S. Senate has been very, very tight nationally. And so donors then respond by targeting races, um, not the races in their particular state, but races that could determine which parties can control the Senate moving forward. And so that question of national control has really changed donations um, for Senate while leaving donations for governor. And arguably, the governor is a central political position in a federalist system. Um, but we haven't seen any real increase in donations going to governors. Now, you're not arguing that local politics doesn't mean anything, um, that it's, it's inconsequential. And in chapter five, you present, I think it's about 10 different cases of the, the interactions of local and national politics. Uh, what do we learn about nationalization of politics uh, from this changing meaning of local politics in the United States from these cases that you pull together in that chapter? So that's a great question. And let me just briefly speak to the first part of it, which is the point that local politics is not inconsequential. Um, and I think that that's really important. When I had originally been thinking about this book, one of the titles that, um, that suggested itself pretty obviously was um, the title, All Politics is National. The idea that you could flip Tip O'Neill's aphorism on its head. But I don't actually think that that's true. I think that um, what motivated me to write this book, in part, is the fact that there are still widely different local issues that face communities around the country. So that you know, Philadelphia may be very, very concerned about the quality of its schools, um, whereas communities in the West or the Southwest might be very, very worried about drought or their water sources. In the Rocky Mountain North, they might be worried about uh, wolf hunting or tourism or other issues. And so what one of the key motivations for me in writing this book is precisely that we're taking all of these disparate local problems and then trying to address them and to project them into one national division, into one national politics. And I think that that, that winds up leaving a lot of issues unaddressed and a lot of people unsatisfied. So specifically then on, on chapter five, what I was trying to do is to look at a set of these cases where 
there are legitimate local issues. There are legitimate issues that we expect some people, by virtue of where they live, are going to care more about than others. And then what I was interested to do is to see, can I actually find in their attitudes evidence that the place that they were living, and thus the issue, the particular issue that they were facing, shaped their political attitudes? And what I tried to do then is to look at a whole set of the kinds of local issues that don't typically crop up in contemporary political science or in contemporary survey research, right? By definition, survey, national surveys ask about questions that are seen as broadly relevant to the nation as a whole. And as a consequence, it's a little hard to track down data on public opinion about these more localized issues. But I then cataloged the data and where I could find it. I looked at, for instance, do people who live in high crime areas worry more about crime? Do people who live in areas that have, that are, say, right along the coast, do they worry more about climate change and the potential for sea level rise that emerges from it? Do people who live near military bases, um, are they different in their views about military spending? Um, do people who live in more economically unequal communities, do they have different views on taxes or even different perceptions about inequality in the nation? And what I found broadly is that on these kinds of local issues, um, I did not see much evidence that where people lived had much predictive power about what they were likely to think. So take the example of wolf hunting. Um, people who live, I did a survey in uh, Idaho and in, in western Montana, and what I found is that people who live near wolves in those places their attitudes on wolf hunting weren't especially different. Uh, that partisanship, knowing whether somebody was a Republican or a Democrat, was a much better predictor of what they thought about wolf hunting than um, knowing whether they actually lived near active wolf packs. And that's a pattern that I saw across a wide range of issues. Now, there are exceptions. I think the ex exceptions are really instructive. People who live in high crime areas are more worried about crime and more likely to support anti-crime spending. People who live in, in areas that have higher rates of unemployment do have different perceptions of how the economy is doing. But I think that those are, in some sense, the exceptions that prove the rule, because those are really highly nationalized issues. And it is precisely once national politics has taken up an issue in a sustained way that then people use those, those nationalized issues to make sense of the concerns that they have in day-to-day -day life. Now, it seemed like um, the, the issues that, that have the, the, the local resonance uh, are, are the issues that, that involve race in some way, and the issues that, that you studied that, that didn't involve race in a critical way were the ones that, had, um, that had, didn't have the local context to them. Is, is, that, a, is that one reading to, to the findings in that chapter, or, or is, it, is, is that off in some way? No, I, I think that that's a very astute reading of those findings. And how I had come to this set of ideas initially was through my grappling with the case of immigration. Um, and I, uh, in the sense that uh, some of my earlier work before I wrote this book was really trying to engage with just how much of uh, contemporary native-born Americans' immigration attitudes could be explained by the places that they live in. 
the U.S. is a tremendously diverse country. We have some communities and some states that have seen tremendous changes as a result of immigration. And we have other communities in other states that have seen virtually no, um, no real demographic changes as a result of immigration. And to a first approximation, one of the things that I've been very struck by is the fact that immigration has become a very, very nationalized political issue, even though its impacts are disproportionately experienced in very specific places. Um, but I think, to, to speaking more directly to your observation, that racialized issues have been among the issues that have animated politics nationally. And so I think partly then that when people are thinking about politics, they are thinking about a whole set of issues that are, that are closely, that are racialized and um, issues on which racial and ethnic groupings are never far from the surface. And so I think it's not an accident that as national political divisions and partisan political divisions have come to really animate not just national politics, but state and local politics, we also see that the kinds of issues that can be kind of animating local issues and can, can generate firestorms in local politics are these racially inflected issues nationally. Now, um, the second half of the book seeks uh, an answer to the question of why. Uh, why nationalization and, and why now? Uh, now, others have suggested that nationalization is a result of a variety of, of factors, uh, media, party realignment, uh, expanded federal authority. What are the primary drivers of your explanation of nationalization, ex- accepting the premise of the first half of the book that this, is, that this has occurred? Let me start by telling you one common suspect that I think we can rule out, uh, which is residential mobility. Academics... Uh, and um, highly educated people, or generally, tend to be among the more mobile groups in American society. And so to, to us, explanations of nationalization make a lot of sense because many of us went to graduate school in one state, college in a second state, and have a job in a third state. Uh, and we are frequently traveling or, you know, around the country, professional networks are very, very national networks. Um, But it turns out that overall, residential mobility has actually been declining. And so I think um, residential mobility is not a particularly good explanation of nationalization writ large. So there are some pieces of it where where it may be more helpful. So instead, I look to other explanations. And it turns out that that the two sides of nationalization that I talked about earlier may have different causes, may have different underlying engines. So let's take them in turn. One element of nationalization is the fact that today voters are disproportionately engaged with, attentive to, and active in national politics. And from a strictly rational point of view, that doesn't make a lot of sense because I am much more likely to cast the decisive ballot in my local statehouse race or in maybe my you know, county commission or city council race than I am in a presidential race, even in a swing state here like Pennsylvania. But, um, but voters are disproportionately engaged with national politics. And I think that to an important extent, we can link that to shifts in the media, shifts in how we get our political information. 
for decades, America had a kind of happy accident, a coincidence between the ways in which we primarily got our political information, say from uh, newspapers, from radio, and from local TV news, and our federalist political institutions, which operate in spatially bound segments of the U.S., right, which operate in Pennsylvania or in Philadelphia or in Albany or in New York State. Um, so there was this happy coincidence where um, it just so happened that media sources, whether they were, say, local television or newspapers, were providing information to a group of people who tended to have in common that they all lived in the same state or the same couple of states. They all, many of them lived in the same city or worked in the same city. And so um, in you know, 1970, if you woke up in the Philadelphia region, you quite possibly would read the Philadelphia Inquirer or the Daily News. You would um, be exposed to information about the place that you lived in. And so media outlets had a real incentive to provide information about state-level politics and local politics. But more recently, with cable news, um, satellite satellite television, and with the internet, now media outlets no longer have the same incentive to compete for people who live in a certain um, space, in a certain geographic place. Now they want to compete for people on other dimensions. Maybe they want to compete for people who are interested in politics or interested in politics with a conservative bent. And so why stop at the boundaries of the New York media market when you can compete across the country, maybe even beyond? Uh, and so one of the key factors that we've seen in recent decades is a shift from spatially bound media sources, media sources that were produced in particular places for people who lived in particular places, and thus with an eye towards information that was relevant to those places, towards media sources that operate at a national level and compete for national audiences. And that transformation then has led um, fewer and fewer people when they seek out political news to get news about the places that they live. And so you get um, po pockets of people living in particular places who sheepishly acknowledge that while they watch Fox News or read the New York Times online or watch MSNBC, they are nonetheless not particularly knowledgeable about what's happening in their state and locality, and that's because they're not getting much information about it. So I, I try to explain the first side of nationalization, that is the nationalization of our attention and engagement, by pointing to media sources. So the second side of nationalization, I think, um, we need to look instead at the political parties and the ways in which our political parties have shifted in recent decades. Um, one of the interesting facts about this, um, this side of nationalization, that is the integration of vote choice, is that it hasn't been a, a secular or a monotonic trend or a continuous trend. That is to say, it's not just that through the decades, vote choices have gotten inexorably more integrated between, say, presidential and gubernatorial voting. Instead, they become more integrated in fits and starts. They became more and more integrated in the 30s and 40s, then less integrated in the 50s and 60s, and then have seen another uptick and reached a new, a new high in nationalization in just the last couple of elections. So what could explain that up and down and up pattern? I think it's, it has to do with the signals that the political parties are sending. 
and the coherence of the political parties. That in um, the 1950s and 1960s, the political parties were um, loose federations that had significant variation in the platforms they were adopting across the country. Now, famously, the Democratic Party was quite different in the southern, in southern states and outside the South, but not just the Democratic Party. Right? The Republican Party um, was a very different party in different parts of the country. And what we have seen in the decades since the 50s is that the political parties have sorted themselves out ideologically such that the Rockefeller Republicans, the liberal Republicans are gone, and the conservative Democrats are gone. And what we're left with then are two very ideologically distinctive parties that are adopting platforms that are much, much, much more consistent nationwide. And that provides less and less space for state-level parties and state-level politicians to craft their own brand. Now, some can do it under some circumstances, right? So that you see Massachusetts, Maryland today have Republican governors. And those governors may well win re-election uh, later this year. But by and large, um, it becomes harder and harder in this highly polarized, highly ideologically infused partisan era for the parties to distinguish, for the parties to, um, to really distinguish themselves across space. The voters know that, the voters can see that, and the voters have sorted themselves out accordingly. In wrapping up our conversation, uh, I wonder if you could look uh, forward a bit. Uh, you're studying these trends of nationalization over a time period. Uh, are you anticipating uh, this trend continuing in the future, or have we hit some zenith in which uh, in the future we might expect less nationalization? What do you expect in the future? That's a great question. and. It sh my answer should almost certainly start with the caveat that um, social science can do much better at contemporary explanation than future prediction. Um, that said, one of the things that is striking to me is if um, is that nationalization has been studied not just in the U.S. but in countries around the world. And in 1960, the U.S. looked national looked like it was a relatively nationalized polity relative to, um, to a range of other countries. And so I think that you would have been surprised potentially in 1960, uh, or certainly in 1970, that we, could, we had so much more nationalization in front of us. Um, and I think that then with respect to what the future brings, the challenge is that nationalization induces a real tension between our political institutions, which are federalist political institutions, which rely on citizens who have significant knowledge about and interest in state and local level government politics, and our political behavior today, which is highly national in orientation. And my view of political behavior tends to be that it is, it is a, um, a significant but slowly adapting force. And at the same time, American political institutions are famously sticky. So we are then caught in a, in a tension between, um, national, between a highly nationalized kind of political behavior and political institutions which have adapted in important respects to that nationalization 
but which still provides substantial authority to states and localities. And if you worry, as I do, about that tension, then you can either think, well, is political behavior going to continue on this nationalizing trajectory, or are you know are we going to see some sort of institutional changes that might reduce that tension? Um, so. Recognizing the challenge and the perils of long-term prediction, I think the short-term trends suggest increased nationalization. And I think that, and I think that because there's still an older generation of Americans who, um, who read local newspapers and who are more knowledgeable about um, state and local politics. And I think that there are still some count, some localizing counterweights. In our political system. So, for instance, um, the New York Times had reported a few years ago that the average American lives only 18 minutes away from his or her mother, right? That we are still people who live um, often not far from the places that we grew up and still embedded in particular communities. And so, and I also think that um, those communities face very different political challenges and that that's not going to go away. And I then, um, in the short term, I can imagine ever heightened nationalization as the older generation um, of people who are more likely to read no- local newspapers and maybe more engaged, have more of a habit of participation in local politics as they age out. But in the longer run, I can also imagine um, a whole set of adaptations, both at the institutional level and at the level of voter interest and behavior that could serve to kind of help rejuvenate interest in the levels of government that are the most tangible and where our participation is likely to have the most concrete impacts. And those are the the state and and local levels. Yeah, this really, really interesting book, again, is called The Increasingly United States, How and Why American Political Behavior Nationalized. The book is available from the University of Chicago Press. Author who you've been hearing from is Daniel Hopkins. Dan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for such engagement with the book and and for taking the time to talk.